Welcome to 15 Past 15 Season 2. My name is Martin Dusenberry, and as you all know, the theme of this season is wealth and the writing of history. It's a real pleasure today to be able to introduce my colleague, Professor Mathieu Leimgruber, who is Professor for 20th Century History here at the Department of History at the University of Zurich, uh, with a particular specialism in social and economic history. Now, in this final episode, we want to turn the focus uh, of what we've been talking about in the previous 14 episodes back on what has perhaps been the kind of elephant in the room for much of this second season, uh, namely, what does it mean to discuss the history of wealth in Zurich, one of the wealthiest cities in the world? And for that, we wanted to talk to Mathieu Leimkruber, and we wanted to wait until now, early in December 2020, uh, just a few weeks after the publication of a public report that he was commissioned to write by the city and canton of Zürich about one of the wealthiest and also most controversial figures in the history of 20th century Zürich and indeed Switzerland, namely Emil Böhle. Uh, and what we want to do over the next 15 or 20 minutes is to ask through Mathieu's work on Böhle what does wealth buy you? And how does wealth transmute across time? Mathieu, welcome. Could you start off by telling us who was Emile Burle? So Emile Burle was a Swiss industrialist. So in fact, he was uh, of German origin. He came in 1924 in Zurich and then developed uh, the Erlikon Burle uh, Group. So at the beginning, it was a machine tool making industry in Erlikond in the northern uh, uh, suburbs of Zurich. And it became the core of the Swiss armaments industry with a specialization in anti-aircraft weapons. So he became, uh, through uh, arms delivery during the Second World War, he became the richest man in Switzerland. And then he built uh, an industrial empire, the biggest family firm in uh, Switzerland. This firm had a long history until the end of the Cold War. In parallel to that, and he's mostly known in Zurich today for his art collection, which is one of the most significant uh, collection of modernist and impressionist paintings of the 20th century worldwide. So it's a collection where he amassed uh, more than 600 uh, paintings and sculptures. So he's both the richest man the, in Switzerland, a very powerful uh, industrialist, but also an art collector. And it makes him a very prominent figure in the history of Zurich, but because of its very close connection to the darkest chapters of 20th century history, he's also one of the most controversial figures in this city. Great. Uh, and so one of the things that you're doing in the report that you were commissioned to write is to trace his career, and particularly his relationship to this art collection, because a new gallery is being built just down the hill from where we're speaking now at the Kunsthaus uh, Zürich. Uh, and um, one of the things that you do in the report is to trace, particularly in the late 1930s, how he suddenly rose to extreme prominence, extreme wealth in Zurich, and how this began to translate into art. Can you tell us a little bit about this crucial period of sort of 1936 to 1940 in, in Böhle's career? 
Yes, absolutely. But I would simply say that the history of the present that you mentioned is here very important because the construction of this extension of the Kunsthaus, as let's say, is also the, the reason why I've been commissioned to do this study, because in this uh, new uh, extension, the Burley uh, collection will be hosted and will be one of the crown jewels of this new extension. So of course there is a need to kind of like uh, contextualize uh, this uh, future <laughs> extension. But then in fact, the whole history of the Kunsthaus is linked to Burley because, and we can uh, talk about that in detail, uh, he himself financed already the first extension of the museum that opened in 1958. And then uh, we will go uh, before that to, uh, let's say, the making of Burley. And as you mentioned, it happens in a very uh, short period in the late 1930s, where he becomes very rich and then really emerges on the scene uh, in Zurich. And I would uh, simply list uh, the different things that happened between 1946 where he begins to uh, buy uh, art paintings on the art market in Zurich. In 1940, when he enters the Kunsthaus as a member of the uh, Zürcher Kunstgesellschaft, so the art society of Zurich, so the private association that uh, sustains the, the Kunsthaus. So this man is a millionaire by the late 1930s because of arm dealings. He's also a millionaire because he takes control, exclusive control of this firm, uh, Kommandit Gesellschaft, uh, as we say in German. So he has all the risks, but also all the opportunities of this firm. And because of the deteriorating uh, international context of the late 1930s, so money is really flowing in. So his uh, uh, wealth is transformed. Uh, he earns his first million in 1947. By 1940, his uh, wealth is already over 40 million Swiss francs. At the end of the Second World War, his wealth will reach 150 million Swiss francs. These are amounts uh, that you have to multiply at least by 10 or 20 in today's francs. And it makes him very quickly the richest man in Switzerland. So you have a relatively unknown person, an outsider that suddenly emerges on the scene of the wealthiest city of Switzerland as the richest man, let's say, uh, on the block. And I say on the block because in fact, he's also transferring his, uh, his house in the wealthiest uh, streets in Zurich in 1938, the Zollikerstrasse. So as soon as he becomes a millionaire, the question that is in front of him is, how can I really uh, integrate, let's say, this Zurich society? Because it's not exactly something easy for an outsider that comes from Germany, uh, works in a niche market, the arms industry that has, a, let's say, a shady reputation. And then this is the fascinating thing about Burley, so how he did this transformation. And I mean, in, in this situation, you know, I think one of the things we've sort of assumed throughout this series is that simply being wealthy is enough and simply having capital is enough. But in fact, Burley shows it's not. You have to translate that capital into social capital, into cultural capital and so on, right? I think the, the history of Emile Burley is so fascinating because it's, uh, it's a very interesting uh, story of the different forms of capital. So of course, uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, so money, 
is at the basis of everything. And then the immense and rapid rise in wealth uh, makes Burle uh, somebody that you, you cannot uh, do without. But then it's not enough. And then I think that here money is used by Emile Burle very uh, quite cleverly in a very tactical way to enter the Zurich society. So uh, the first thing is a spatial move. It's you move in the, in the place where you can meet people of the elite. And then in fact, one of the neighbors, uh, the new neighbors of Emile Burle is a banker who is the head of the Zürcher Kunstgesellschaft. And then interestingly, by buying art and moving in, Burle uh, also uh, provokes a reaction from this milieu who sees Burle as a real asset because this new collector might be the person who could also develop the Kunsthaus in Zurich because he has the means to do that and he shows that by buying art and being ready to uh, participate in this uh, extension of the Kunsthaus. So you have a very interesting dialectical relationship with, uh, with Burle who enters the stage signals that he's ready to participate and then people who recognize these signals pull him in and then also um, use him or simply co-produce him as an important person so money always plays uh, a very important role in this story because in fact when you look at the art society of zurich what do we have in this society it's dominated by bankers so the financial place so money, in fact, not industry. So he's a little bit the outsider in this art society in terms of his, uh, let's say, wealth background. But then his wealth is so immense that is, it's interesting for the local banks for investment purposes, but also as an asset to develop, let's say, the cultural facets of the city of Zurich. So I think Burle uh, was really aware of that. And then he transmuted, as you say, his money capital into different forms of capital, relational, social, and cultural. And here the art collection is really, uh, has really has to be seen as an asset. And this is the fascinating thing. With 30 paintings in 1939, <coughs> he's already considered a major Zurich collector. By his death in 1956, he would have bought more than 600 paintings. So we can see the, the disproportion between the beginning of the art collecting career and the end, because at the beginning, he's really a Zurich asset. And then at his death, well, he's still important for Zurich, but then his collection is really on the world stage, which is a totally different, uh, let's say, uh, story mm. but of course one can't ignore and i mean this is one of the points of your report that in order to make this jump that you've just described he's dealing in in a very controversial market in the late 1930s and the 1940s because of the rise of the nazi regime in germany and especially the way in which jewish dealers are being treated by the nazis jewish collectors are being treated by the nazis what's his relationship to that so the the controversy with Burle is, of course, linked to this period. But then you have to look at this period because, in general, it's a controversial period for Swiss banks, 
or Swiss industries and Switzerland in general, because Switzerland has a very peculiar, let's say, position during World War II. It remains outside of the, of the conflict, nominally neutral, extremely integrated at the financial and industrial level with uh, the Axis uh, powers. And then, of course, it has been the topic of much controversy in Switzerland uh, itself uh, in the last uh, decades. The key word uh, here will be uh, the works by the Berger Commission, so one of these historians' commission about the uh, Switzerland and the Second World War. That was in the mid-1990s, right? Exactly. The results were published in 2001-2002, 20 years ago. And then Burley plays a prominent part in many of the reports of this commission because he kind of like, he personifies also the, let's say, the shady dealings of the Swiss banking and industrial elites because he's, he's the richest guy in Switzerland. He's active on an art market that is totally transformed by Nazi persecutions. And then, of course, he's active in the industrial sector that is prominent uh, during the war, let's say, arms uh, uh, dealings. So in 1942, for example, early Conburlet, it's approximately 10% of Swiss exports uh, towards Germany, so only this firm. So he plays a central role during the war, and then everything coalesces during the war. Not only the art collection, but also the consolidation of the firm and then the entry of Burles in the elite. So you really have, uh, 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 let's say, all these factors that come together during this period. But then at the same time, I would say that focusing too much on Burley himself might not be the way to really understand what is happening in this uh, Zurich elite uh, society during this period. Because you have the war, but at the same time, these people are not, let's say, speaking about the war. They are, the, they are let's say, um, interested in developing the art museum. It seems totally paradoxical in uh, Europe that is, let's say, has other, let's say, preoccupations, but this is for these elites what they have in mind. That's a, a, a brilliant description of, of the milieu in the 1940s, but, but as, you, as you said at the beginning of your comments, uh, this is still hot controversy today, and the milieu of Zurich at the end of the Cold War and moving into what is now contemporary Zurich, plays a role in keeping this collection, this particular figure, and then the wider society that supported him, uh, a sort of lightning rod for critiques, particularly from the left, but from uh, the popular press as well. And, and can you say a little bit about um, how uh, there's a second transformation of the Bule wealth after the end of the Cold War? W what is that? So, of course, now we have uh, focused on, let's say, the beginning of the story, which is the emergence of Burley on, on the Zurich stage. And then you might have, let's say, we could discuss a second stage, which is the consolidation on, uh, in the Cold War, uh, early uh, Cold War era. Then he dies quite uh, young in 1956. And then... Uh, the firm is what remains for the second generation of the Burley family until the end of the Cold War. Interestingly, the art collection is there, but then plays, I would say, a secondary role because he's the role of the firm as a crucial, let's say, employer, taxpayer, 
part of the industrial elite is much more prominent. And then the, the collection is partly dispersed after his death. Uh, one third remains in a publicly uh, accessible private museum uh, financed by the family. His two children each get uh, around 150 paintings. So the, the fantastic art collection, let's say, plays a background role during almost half a century. The situation uh, transforms itself, interestingly, at the end of the Cold War, when Ehrlichon Burler runs into uh, growing difficulties. Because, let's say, the new piece is a problem for, let's say, a war-oriented manufacturer. For uh, complex reasons, uh, the arms conglomerate uh, runs into problem, is dispersed, fights within the family. So to make a long story uh, very short, the Ehrlichon Burley conglomerate has now disappeared and is no more. And it's exactly at this moment that the art collection comes back to the foreground. So this is a fascinating history and then this is the story of today. Now people speak about Burley as an art collector because the industrialist, let's say, past is uh, uh, less uh, prominent. But then, of course, with the art collection comes this whole history <laughs> of Nazi uh, persecution, uh, shady dealings on the art market. And then, of course, this immense asset, which is now the collection, has also to deal with this past. Mm. What have been the challenges for you? You're an economic historian by training. Uh, perhaps you wouldn't have expected to end up writing uh, so publicly um, about such a controversial topic, but also one that is about the art market. It's quite removed from your original training. Uh, what has it been like for you writing this uh, history and, and recovering this history? So uh, I have to say um, uh, in a few words that the study has three parts. The first part is about the, the firm, so Ehrlichon Burley. The second one is about the networks uh, built and co-produced by Emil Burley. So it's this art society, uh, Zurich elite uh, stories. And then the third one is about the making of the art collection. And then the study is in fact about the interactions between these three levels. And then of course, for a social and economic historian, um, you approach such a collection uh, with the lens of business uh, history, I would say. And I'm not an art historian. And then I've considered this collection as part of the industry or family conglomerate. And then it makes sense because it cannot be uh, separated from these other dimensions. Because, of course, the history of the firms gives, let's say, the impetus for the building of the art collection. The networks and then uh, Burley's entry in this network is absolutely related to this art collection. This is the transmutation topic that we addressed at the beginning. And then the collection itself is part of, let's say, this social climbing story. And then, as we just mentioned, has, let's say, a much more resilience than the industrial part of the story. So, of course, you have to integrate this history of art into this uh, family firm or family clan uh, history. 
So for a business uh, historian or an economic of uh, social historian, it makes sense. So I focus less on the individual paintings as on the money fluxes and market structures that enable the making of this collection. So it's a risky entry into a topic that I was not expected to, let's say, deal with uh, uh, three or five, uh, four years ago. But then I think, and this is one of the conclusions of this study for me, if you look at the arms market or the art market, in fact, you look at markets that are quite similar. It's very intransparent. It's very risky and shady dealings. And then there is a lot of, let's say, connections between, uh, let's say, the armament market and the art market. And then for a social and economic historian, it makes it a fascinating study object. And so a final question, Mathieu. Um, do the wealthy write history and do they write it successfully? Uh, I would say that the wealthy do not write history and then historians do that. And then I think it's uh, important to do that in one of the wealthiest city of one of the wealthiest countries in the world because this is a little bit the, the, the irony. So when you look at the history of Zurich, in fact, the history of this wealth and then these connections remains quite underdeveloped. Okay, so it's a paradox when you compare it to uh, the history of other financial centers like uh, London or New York. So you have uh, magnificent histories of New York or London bourgeoisie and uh, financial elites. It's not so uh, developed for Zurich. So I think uh, looking at Burle is also a reminder that we have to deal with these themes uh, in this context. Mathieu Leimgruber, thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you.